Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Man, hey, church, how are we? We good? Come on. It's good to be in church this morning. Amen? Amen. Hey, uh, we took a pause from our Colossians series last week to talk worship. Uh, I do just want to say before we, before we jump back into Colossians, uh, Katie and I were driving. It was later that night. We were coming home uh, from, from some family's house, and, and it just kind of struck us. where We were like, hold, hold on. Caden's 23. Uh, Mac, who was up here leading worship, was, is 21. And Jaden, who's the young guy in the keys last week, was 19. So if you collectively take the age of like who was leading that service last week, it was like 21 years old. And I think what struck me most is like it just it didn't feel like that, right? Like it was, it was just done with such maturity and such wisdom. And so, man, they did uh, an awesome job. If you missed the message last week on worship, uh, you need to go back and watch it because it was very, even, even someone who's been following Jesus, singing to Jesus for a long time, it was very helpful, wasn't it? And so jump into that, go, go back and watch that. But I just wanted to acknowledge, like, uh, there might be a lot of stuff we're worried about in the up and coming generation, but it just feels good to go like, no, we're good here. Like, we're good. We got some awesome young people coming in and participating and help build this thing with us. Amen which is so cool, so cool. Um, yes, uh, we are going to uh, get back into just, we, what we've been doing this series is standing as we read the portion of scripture that we're gonna be in. And so I'm gonna invite Lance and Katie Robinson. Uh, they're new members to our church. They're gonna come on down and read Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And if you would just uh, posture your body in a way that is honoring to the Lord for the reading of his word, would you guys just all stand with us? Starting Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or, and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? <clears throat> do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I, uh, I've realized maybe it's just the season that I'm in with uh, summer, summer break being upon us. The kids are in home. I feel like a lot of my parenting right now, and parents, you could probably level with me a little bit in the room, is just around helping my kids know how to think. Do you know what I mean? And it's so funny, like even if you don't have kids right now, like you remember when you had kids, uh, I can think of maybe the, like the refrain of my household from my dad was, please turn the lights off when you leave your room, right? You know, uh, please close the door. We're not paying to heat the, or to cool off the whole outside, right? Things like this. And really like, it's not just that I want my kids to know how to like, I don't want to just impose all these rules on them so that they spend money or so that they turn lights off, manage the power and utilities of my household in the ways that I want them to. But really I want them to, I want them to know how to think. Like, I, don't, I want them to just know that, man, hey, uh, you're, you're, you have some money from your birthday or something like that. Like, let's not just have that evaporate the second it hits your hands. 
Like, let's do some things with that money. Let's, uh, let's, let's leave the lights turned off in your room because when there's nobody there, we don't need the lights on. Uh, like, uh, it's just so funny how you become your parents. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm just constantly like, why, why is every single light on in the basement? Why is every single light? Am I, am I alone? Dads, moms, like, it's, this, is, this is a lot of what parenting is. I'm just, I'm just realizing, maybe it's because we're spending so much time with our kids right now in summer, that I'm just like, man, we need to teach y'all how to think. We need to teach you how to think. And this is really like the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church with that kind of like fatherly tone in love for sure. But he's one of the things he's trying to put inside the Colossian church's mind is like, you guys, you need some help knowing how to think. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. You saw it in the passage as we read through it, that there's, there's some bad thinking that is creeping its way into the Colossian church. And, and here's the news, folks, like there is nothing new under the sun. So bad thinking then still exists now. It's probably just labeled something different. So there's still bad thinking. There's still ways that we think that are corrupt, that are, that are maybe good, but they're not good enough, which I'll argue is most of what's being taught here in the Colossian church, that it's not something that's just like overtly and blatantly wrong because that's easy to pick out, right? If somebody comes and starts teaching heresy that's just like completely easy to spot, it's easy to go, that's not right. Like, like Jesus died and was resurrected. Like I know that like you can't, you can't convince me otherwise, no matter what kind of clever teaching you come up with. So there's big things like that that we wouldn't argue about, but then there's a lot more subtle things, subtle teachings, subtle ways that even creep into the church clearly, because that's what Epaphras, the, the pastor, the leader of the Colossian church, has gone to Paul. And although Paul is writing to do several things, encourage this Colossian church, he's writing this letter to, to build them up, to teach them a couple things. One of the main reasons he's writing to this church is to confront their bad thinking. And so there's three, three kind of areas where they're thinking incorrectly or thinking wrongly. And we're just going to walk through them today. It walks right through them in the passage. And we'll put a name to them and we'll explore what it was doing in the Colossian church. And then we'll also ask ourselves the question, well, is this still relevant today? And as we look at each one of those three areas where thinking has gone south and we look at the relevance to the church today, we're going to ask ourselves, well, then what's the remedy? What's the remedy? How do we address and fix this stinky thinking, Right? Newsflash, spoiler alert, is Jesus, okay? But we'll unpack that point a little more clearly as we get down to it. So I want you to open your Bible up. If you have, if you have your Bible with you, if you have your phone with you, you can follow along in the YouVersion app. I think there's some stuff that you really want to pick out and see in this passage today. But it starts in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, where, where Paul writes, Therefore, as if to say, everything that we've talked about so far, the supremacy and the supreme value of Christ as preeminent, that's the main point of the, of the book so far, that Jesus needs to be over everything in your life, over everything. And in him is how you're going to continue to press on in your faith. It's not going to be under your own effort. It's not going to be under the things that you are doing, but it's going to be this grace, the grace-driven, grace-sustained effort that is in Christ, that is going to, how you're, going to be how you're going to walk in him, walk in your faith. So he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The first idea that Paul's introducing in these first two passages is the idea of legalism. Legalism. If you want to get a further understanding of how Paul feels about legalism, it's basically the entire letter he wrote to the Galatian church. But here, what he's driving down on is, is he's saying, man, there's Jewish people who are trying to add rules and regulations, especially in regard to the way they eat and the festivals that they participate in that say that you have to do these things like they are necessary for salvation. 
That's what, he, that's what they're, they're encouraging them. They're, they're challenging the Colossian church. And so what you have to keep in mind is the Colossian church, just like any church, is made up of varied people from varied backgrounds. So just like, we, I mean, we all walked in here today and we all have different stories. Like, like I didn't grow up in a church. Some of you did grow up going to church. Some of you grew up with just like, man, a really rough, rough, rough backstory. Some of you grew up in, and life's been pretty much a cakewalk up until now. You've been given a lot of stuff. But, the, but no matter what, like we're all, we're brought in here regardless of money, regardless of race, regardless of anything else that like subdivides us as a culture. No, like we, we came in here because Christ has made us one. And, and what, the, what is happening in the Colossian church is there's this kind of like pulling together of several people in the town of Colossae, where you have some Jewish people who are really rooted in their Jewish faith coming into this church. And they, and they encountered Jesus, they encountered the gospel, and they were set free from Judaism, so to speak. They fell in love with Jesus, but now they're starting to drift back to bring in, bring in some of these Jewish tendencies. There, there's pagan people, people have been worshiping all kinds of various different things. And then there's just like some probably Gentile people who are just normal, regular people. And all of them sort of are pulled together in the Colossian church. And, and the legalistic side is the Jewish people influencing the rest of the church, trying to add rules for salvation, which ultimately dismisses the grace of God and creates judgment towards others who don't adhere to your rules. So legalism, let me just say, it's, it's going to be your proclivity. It's going to be your tendency to bend yourself towards legalism if you've grown up in the church. And how many of you have grown up in the church and you'd say, yeah, I, I know this is true. I know this is true. I, I, I add rules to my life and I, and, I can, and I can at times neglect the fact that it is grace that saved me. Ultimately, when we start talking about legalism, it's, it's, they're adding all these rules like to the Old Testament. And Paul says, no, no, those things are a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's what that phrase means. I, um, this was back when I was in high school. I think I just got my driver's license and uh, took a buddy camping with me. And, and it was just at that stage where like my, my parents would camp over here and we would camp down the hill, like in my truck with a, with a tent in the back of the truck in the pickup bed. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it was one morning, it was very early. We woke up to the sound of like an animal outside of the tent. Like, no kidding. I just could hear this. And I've got my one buddy, his name was Jason with me. And we're both just kind of like freaking out in the tent. Cause not only could we, not only could we hear the animal, but we could see this, this outline of a shadow on the tent. Right. And so like, like how, how many of y'all know, I wasn't afraid of the shadow. I was, I was afraid of what the shadow was pointing towards. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that, it, it turned out it was a cow. <laughs> so it was all good. It wasn't a bear or anything like that. But it was, you know, eventually we're sitting there, we're freaking out. We're like, what are we going to do? You know, I'm going to outrun you is probably what I'm going to try and do. And because you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun your friend. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's all you have to really do. <laughs> but it was, you know, like, ultimately it like mood outside. <laughs> so I was like, Murr. and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's not a bear. It's a cow. And there were cows everywhere, actually. So, but this, this is what Paul is, is saying. The Old Testament is an outline but the reality belongs to Jesus. And, and so what this does not mean, does not mean that the Old Testament is unimportant. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at what's there. Doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't like be in love with some of the things that are in the Old Testament. But what we have to always keep in mind when we're reading the Old Testament is the Old Testament is always pointing us forward towards Jesus. The Old Testament is always pointing us forward towards Jesus. So, so all of the, all of the uh, everything but the moral law that was given by Moses was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. So the dietary requirements, the sacrifice requirements, all these things were fulfilled in Jesus. And now what we keep from the Old Testament is specifically is the moral law. So we keep morality in Jesus. In fact, he, he ratchets up the morality, doesn't he? He's like, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, even if you look at your brother with anger in your heart, you've committed murder. 
So Jesus ratchets up the moral law only to show us all, every single one of us, like that we are exposed to this fact that we are sinful. And so here's what I want to say to you legalistic people in the room, you people who have this kind of proclivity, is that you were saved by grace alone. And this is, this is like, I know you know that. I know intellectually you would, on, you would answer that on the quiz. How were you saved? By grace through faith. Thank you. This was not my own doing. It was apart from the works of the law. Like you would know all this stuff. You would know it all. But there's something still in your heart that I think hasn't fully received that grace. And one of the ways that that's evidenced is by the way that you get maybe judgmental or you maybe get a little bent out of shape would probably be the easier way of saying it towards people who have not had the same testimony as you, but they're receiving the same blessing that you're receiving. And so we're sitting in this room right now and there's some of you that like, you, you probably started praying in tongues when you were three years old. Like came to know Jesus when you were out of the womb, right? Like the first words out of your mouth were Jesus. Like, just like, I love you, Jesus, right? Like that's how some of you, that's some of your guys' testimony. And you're sitting next to people who have been, who have participated in the most bent, broken, depraved situations. And we are sitting here worshiping the same God with the same status. And, and the reason that's possible is because we've each been saved by grace. Here it is in Romans 3, uh, verses 9 and 10. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. So like, here's what I just have to have you, if this is your bent, if this is your tendency to fall towards the air of legalism, and you start adding rules like, well, I have to go to church. And I'm looking down on people who don't go to church. Well, I have to tithe. And I have to tithe. And I'm looking down on people who don't tithe. But listen, all those things, they, they did not save you. They might be evidence of your salvation, but those things did not save you. You were saved by God's grace alone. You didn't earn his favor by all the good behavior you had when you were in middle school. Like you, you, you did not save yourself. You did, not, you did not earn yourself some sort of blessing because of the way that you behaved in high school when all your friends were acting a fool. That's not, that's not how it worked. Now, now here's where, here we got to get careful because God is a God of sowing and reaping. And so maybe some of you did grow up in that Christian setting and your parents before you, praise God, and you yourself sowed a lot of good decisions into your story. And now you are reaping the benefits of those good decisions that you sowed into your past. But that does not specifically mean that you earned this favor from God because you went to VBS every year when you were a kid. Like you didn't just deserve all of this. God still graciously just gave it to you. Just in the same way he graciously gave it to the sinful person sitting next to you. Because you're both sinful. And until you can actually let that reality settle down into your heart, you're always going to have this proclivity towards legalism, adding rules into your life so that you can convince yourself, maybe to cover up some sense of insecurity, maybe to cover up some sense of fear. You add these rules into your life so that you can prove to yourself and really to the other people around you that you are spiritual. And it's legalism. It's legalism. It's not the grace of God that was given to you. Grace was given for your salvation. It is now grace that sustains you. It is not your own doing. The second one that we'll look at is this idea of mysticism, and it's found in Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, we'll talk about that one third, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So 
So there's this idea going around in the Colossian church of mysticism. It probably is influenced and colored by a lot of the pagan worship. So you got to remember, like, keep in mind, when, when Paul's writing this letter to the church in Colossae, uh, there's just like worship for everything. Man, you worship the farm, you worship the, the sun god, you worship the money god, you worship the sex god. Like there's all sorts of things that you give yourself over to in worship. And so there's a crew that has been saved by Jesus, brought into the church, but they're falling back to old tendencies clearly. And what they're doing is they're, they, they've like clearly in their past had these like wild encounters with angels or they've had these like wild spiritual experiences that were probably legit. Like, like there, there's just really, there's really only two teams that are, that are out there in the, in the spiritual realm. There's, there's the angels and then there's the demonic. And so they were, they were somehow engaging with one, both, or, or like either of those two. Do you know what I'm saying? So they're, they're having these spiritual encounters and what they're convincing the rest of the church is that, that man, unless you're kind of like really worshiping, like, like I don't know what you were doing during worship, but I, I was up in the third heaven man, and like Gabriel was right there. And, and like, man, it was just all, like Michael and Gabriel, we were all just like in it together, like worshiping in the throne room of Jesus. And you weren't? Oh, you weren't. Yeah, no, oh, hey, it's okay. Mysticism, it's this idea of creating kind of this spiritual hierarchy based on spiritual experiences. And I'll be straight with you. I think we fight this battle on two fronts uh, in, in, our, in our day today. I think the main way that we fight it in church specifically is, is that, man, try as we might, we still, in our mind, uh, and in our heart sometimes, we'll create sort of spiritual hierarchies in the church. Oh, you've never received a word of knowledge. Oh, okay. Uh, well, you've never seen, uh, like, well, and, and I think a lot of times it's not necessarily happening from maybe this spiritually more mature down to the spiritually immature, but I think the spiritually immature are oftentimes projecting it up to the spiritually mature. That like, that you have this feeling, right? Like, like I can't go to that church because I'm still sort of JV in my faith and they're all clearly varsity. And, and there's just, there is no separation like that in the kingdom of God. Like those who have given themselves in faith to Jesus are now a part of what we would call a family and what Paul calls a body where no part gets to say to itself, I'm insignificant. So, so like right now, you're sitting in this room and your faith might be a baby. It might be an infant faith. You might not even really know what giftedness lies in you. And you might question if you even have a giftedness in you. And you're part of this body. You're part of this body. And I'll say this, we need your gifts. We need your gifts. The kingdom of God in this city needs your gifts. So I don't, I don't know how God exactly wired you, but I know that he's wired you. I know that he's put things inside of you. And there is no like, oh, well, those guys on stage, they're really doing it. That, no, may that never be. Every single person is being equipped, trained, and resourced for the work of ministry in this city. I, I, we, we confront this one all the time, but it still happens where you either come in and you think, oh my gosh, all these guys are so much farther ahead of me. And, and there may be more maturity to some of the gifts that sit in this room. There may be more wisdom to some of the people that sit in this room, but there's no one person in this room that's more valuable than another. And there's no one person on the flip side of that same coin that, that matters less than the people sitting next to you. And so we never get to look at contempt towards an immature believer, but we hopefully lovingly get to encourage all of us, spur all of us along so that we might grow into him who is the head. Amen? The other way that I think this happens is, is culturally. So I think we, we fight the fight of mysticism, right? Creating this kind of spiritual hierarchy on the front in the church, but I think we also are fighting it right now uh, on a cultural front. Here's what I mean. Uh, I, I am going to make a point here, uh, and I'm going to argue from this point, that woke, the woke movement— Wokeness in our culture is actually really just a form of mysticism. Here's, here's, I want to be super clear as I say this. So 
you, you may not like have a lot of context for that phrase. You might try and have just like kind of buried your head under a rock and not paid attention to what's happening in our world the last four years. And honestly, like, I don't blame you. You know what I mean? Like it's been on quite a drift the last, I don't know, 10 years since I've been to high school, maybe where we just like gone exponentially down this route towards, towards just craziness. You know what I'm saying? However, we have to, as Christians, be dialed into the fact that there is bad teaching out there. And what the woke movement does, and it's, you got to keep in mind, let's, let's actually look at these couple of verses here in, uh, in Colossians. Do we have Colossians 8, 2, 8? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know if I have the slide there. That's okay. Paul writes, Paul has these phrases earlier on in Colossians where he says, uh, don't be taken by plausible arguments, right? And he says, don't be taken captive by this philosophy. So, so what I, I wanted to bring those up because I, I want to just show you and invite you in. Like Paul's clearly urging people that like this, this line of thinking is more tempting than we maybe give it credit for. Because here's what, like the woke movement has started, it's started, it has its roots primarily in like uh, racial justice, right? But since then it has been adopted really by the political ideologies of the left to encompass all areas of social justice. So now you have movements like LGBTQ, you have movements like uh, Me Too, you have, you have absolutely like BLM and what they stand for. All these different movements are, are now like, they, they probably at this point won't say they're under the banner of wokeness, but they are, and, and they historically are. And, and the reason why wokeness is spiritual is because the very claim in and of itself claims a spiritual revelation, does it not? Like there's this, there's this sense of like, well, I've been awakened to, I've been enlightened of this brokenness that's in the world. And what this teaching and this ideology puts on everyone is that you are either, you are either helping fix the problem or you're part of the problem. So now this religious system has depravity and it has salvation. It, it has liturgy. It has books that you have to read. It has different, uh, different tenets that it stands on. Like if you think of just uh, all the different buzzwords in our culture right now, like social justice, intersectionality, critical race theory, cultural appropriation, toxic masculinity, and, and I probably can't even get started on all the different ways that you can describe gender at this point. And here's, I'm just saying, it's, it's a mysticism in that it's a, it's a claim to be spiritually enlightened and now morally superior to anyone who does not believe and adhere to this worldview. And so this is why, like, this is how I think we have to confront it. Because I think there's a couple ways that I see the church confronting this issue right now. Uh, one is just to call it all just a bunch of malarkey. Let's use that word. <laughs> and, and what that dismisses is the reality that there are some issues out there. The woke movement, some of this political ideology movement does actually capture some very real problems that are happening in the world. Racism is real and it's evil, and, it's, and you, can, you can try and dismiss it all that you want, but it still happens. It still happens. Uh, th there, there, are, there are problems with gender equality in our nation. There are women doing the same jobs as men, and they're getting paid less. There, there are issues there. There are, is like, there are issues about that. Uh, the border situation should elicit some compassion in Christians. At the very least, it should elicit some compassion. It's a complex issue. Racial injustice Black Lives Matter. Here, here's what I want to get behind. Like, like there are so many slogans that get attached to these movements and the slogans oftentimes in and of themselves, they sound good, don't they? Like you come out saying like Black Lives Matter and I'm like, well, of course they do. It breaks my heart that somebody even has to say that. Do you know what I mean? They say love is love. Now that we're in pride month here, love is love. And I'm like, well, 
You know what is love? Love. So that saying's not wrong. <laughs> love is love. That, that, that is true. But, but here's what we, here's the church, what we have to do. So the, on the one hand, what our, our tendency is to just completely dismiss it and say it's all garbage. And I'm saying it's not all garbage. There's real problems there. They just don't identify right solutions. So what we have to do, what we have to do as the church is we have to take slogans. We have to take mantras. I'll even go so far, make America great again. Take that one, take every cultural slogan that you've heard. And what we have to do as the church is we have to press that cultural slogan until what we see is the ideology behind it. And once we start to see the ideas and the people that are forming that slogan and the ideas and the worldview that they stand on, then what we have to do with that ideology is we have to bring it onto this book. And we have to say, where does that fall on here? And if, it do, if, the, if the movement in and of itself doesn't bring us to a point of repentance from sin, lordship to Jesus Christ, surrender to his spirit, then it's of the devil, it's not of God. And so this is what, like this is, I felt like we had to kind of bring this up today because it's a form of mysticism where we have these kind of spiritual claims where if you are, if you're woke and if you're part of the woke movement, it's, it's a bold claim to just claim that you are spiritually more enlightened than anyone else. It is. And, and it creates in itself, it cascades out this religious system. And I just think as, as the church, we're only moving deeper into this as a nation. And so what we have to do is you, we have to, we have to, we have to, church, be what First Peter says, we, are, we have to be prepared to make a sound defense for the reason for the hope that's within you. With gentleness and respect, defend your faith. Defend your worldview. And if you don't, I just rattled off all those terms and you're like, I don't, I don't know what those terms are. You better learn them because your school board knows them, your HR department knows them, and they're operating in them. And so you have to know why you disagree, why you agree with some of the problems, but you, this is, this is what, it, what basically boils down to. I agree that, that the woke movement has identified some real problems. They've made things that are problems that are absolutely not problems, but they identify some things that are absolutely problematic to our culture, but then they, they deploy wrong solutions. I'm just up here to say the only solution that is going to help us grow is one that is rooted in Jesus Christ as the head. That, that's what Colossians 2.19 says, and not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And so what do I do with any, any ideology, any slogan that comes my way? I am pressing that ideology to say, how does it stand with Jesus? What does it do with the cross? What does it do with lordship to Jesus? What does it do with his kingdom? And, and please hear me, this doesn't mean we don't get involved. We should absolutely get involved. The church has the answer, folks. Like we have the answer to this. We can't just stand by the wayside and let culture just dominate this conversation. That's why I'm just, I'm, I'm begging you, get equipped, get resourced. Don't bury yourself in Fox News. Don't bury, bury yourself in CNN for goodness sakes. That's the last place you want to just get buried in this. But if you, if you are interested in more of this, I would just beg you to order the book Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham. Look up Vody Bauckham, listen to one of his sermons. Dude is incredible. I don't have all the time to say everything I would like to say about this, uh, but here's what I'll do. I'll say this because it's foreshadowing to our July 4th message. July 4th is on a Sunday, so we're talking about Christianity and nationalism. Come on, somebody. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> this thinking might ruin our country, but it will not ruin the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen? There is no such promise about America, and that's what you have to be prepared for. And so we have to engage in this as the church, as the light of the world, the ones with the answers to expose what's dark. Amen?
All right, let's move along. Uh, Judy, let's go ahead and go on to verse 20, I guess. Pick up um, for, for asceticism, the last one. Verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that are all perishing as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. A lot of words there. Here's what's happening. It's, again, probably influenced by some of the Judaism that helped form this church in the beginning. But now what, what they're doing is they're saying, you have to deny and you have to put off certain things. You can't eat that. You can't drink that. You can't touch that. It's unclean. And what Paul is continuing to remind us of that, no, Christ has made it clean. Christ has bought those things back for us. And so what, what asceticism ends up being is it's the inherent belief that pleasure and the material world are bad, creating a theology where spirituality is gained through subtraction or self-denial. Basically, what it says asceticism teaches is if you want to be more spiritual, you got to say no to more stuff. And, and I just, like, like the two big ones that this is going to circulate around is around alcohol and it's around money. And so you have people that feel like they, they feel bad because they have money. They feel like they shouldn't have this much money. And they feel almost this guilt and the shame that comes with having money. But, but there's no problem. Like, it is not money that is the problem. It's the love of money. When you give your heart over to money, that is the root of all kinds of evil. But God is, like, here's what I've learned about people with money. They, they didn't get there because of an oppressive system. Most people I know. I'm sure some people did. Most people I know, though, if you, if you took everything they had away, they would just build a different business and get it all back again. But, but there's this ascetic teaching where we think that we have to like harm ourselves or hurt ourselves. And what it's denying is the sufficiency of the suffering of Christ on the cross. On the cross. So like Jesus atoned for our sins. He paid the payment for everything, took that payment on him. We actually, we don't have to add suffering to what he already suffered for. So this is, it gets maybe muddled when we talk about fasting. Why would we fast? Fasting, like if you fasted all the time, I would say that's asceticism. You're convinced that you can deprive yourself of, of food long-term so that you can so that you can have a greater spirituality, a greater spiritual walk with Jesus. But, but you see it in the text that it's, it's all for selfish and vain purposes, that people are showing how much they can go without different things uh, by the way they can just say no to everything. And, and with alcohol, that's another one that people probably just get stumbled up on. And, and they say, well, you know what? Uh, my grandma was a drunk, my, my mom was a drunk, and so I'm just making a personal rule around never drinking alcohol. Here's what I'll say. Personal rules, I think, are great. I think they're great. If you have a rule in your life that you don't touch something because it's been a temptation for you and it's been a stumbling block for you, awesome. Asceticism is when you start to, you start to look down on others who are not adhering to your rules to go without. You can't deny the fact that Jesus turned a whole bunch of water into a whole bunch of wine for his very first public miracle. <laughs> like, it was probably about a thousand bottles of wine. People are like, well, it wasn't as strong as it is today. I'm like, it was a thousand bottles. <laughs> well, it was for a wedding that lasted multiple days. Again, a thousand bottles of wine. Here's, here's what I think asceticism does. It says like Christianity, we got to say no to everything because the world is so bad. And you neglect the fact that Jesus has redeemed the world and that the church should actually be one of the most joyous places on planet earth. Like we, we have been saved. I've been set free. I, like I have been told at a wedding by some random DJ that I didn't even know that he's like, man, your group knows how to have fun at a wedding. You're not getting like crazy drunk. You're not sloppy about the things you're doing, but you're also not just sitting there at the tables doing nothing. I'm like, yeah, because it's a wedding. It's a place where we should go and we should celebrate. Two people are giving their lives to Christ and to each other. That's an amazing thing. We should party. Hey, church, 
it's okay to have fun. But you cannot let that fun lead you to a spot where it becomes the focus and it's where your heart begins to go. Jesus gets all of my affection. Jesus gets all of my devotion. And, and, and he has redeemed things so that I don't have all these crazy rules about how I can't touch that, I can't eat that, I can't, you know, some churches, it's like, no, you can't dance. I'm like, man, you don't think Jesus danced at that wedding? I've seen Chosen. I know he dances at that wedding. I've seen the footage, you know what I mean? Man, all right, so y'all like Chosen in this service. Like, we get it, okay? The point, the point being, here's how I think I can best explain asceticism. Um, I've been married to Katie for 10 years. And I love her and I treasure her as my wife, for sure. Um, what asceticism does is it creates a bunch of rules that like, well, because I married Katie, I can, I can never even be around girls again. And it starts to create all these rules and fences around my life. And, and it starts to say, well, you know what? Like, I'm never, going, I'm never going to the gym. I'm never going online. I'm never going anywhere because, man, there's temptation out there. And so I got to be just really careful. And I got to guard my marriage. Is that true to some extent? Please, somebody say, yes, that's true to some extent, Right? But what's, what's wrong about that line of thinking is that if I'm so easily tempted, if I'm so easily pulled off of my affection and my devotion for Katie, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have a problem with lack of self-control. I might have a problem with lack of self-control, but my root problem is that I haven't, I haven't been tending my affection and my devotion for my wife. So do you see that now with faith? If you've had to make so many rules around your Christianity so that you are deprived of, not tempted by, staying away from, and you, you can't walk in, in holiness and purity in devotion for Jesus because of all these temptations around you, maybe you do have a problem with self-control, but I just want to also put on your radar, you also for sure have a problem with devotion and affection for Jesus. Like, but rather than just continue to fight all these temptations, I wonder if you just put a bunch of effort into falling in love with him more. You just got yourself around him more. You just started worshiping him more. You started listening to worship music in your car in between meetings. You started to just pray more. You started to get in your word more nourish your relationship with Jesus, and, and then also, yeah, like create some rules in your life. I'm, I'm all, please hear me, like I'm all good. If you don't drink, you don't drink, and that's fine with me. Create rules for your life that you think are right, but don't create rules because you're so afraid that your faith is so thin. Work on your faith. Nourish your faith. And so this is where we come to the point where we're going to do communion at the end of the message here. And, and really, all of this, all of this finds its, finds its point in Jesus. And because even as I'm saying, like, man, you got to nourish your faith, like for each one of these, for legalism, where you're just kind of obsessed with, with adding rules to your life so that you can look really holy, or, or whether you're obsessed with mysticism and you're just so enamored by like spiritual encounters or looking spiritual virtue signaling your spirituality to the world around you, right? Or maybe, or maybe you're caught up in asceticism where you're just like totally into like depriving yourself or saying no to everything just so you can kind of prove to yourself how holy you are. All of those things uh, find the true gospel in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul writes another letter that's a lot like Colossians to the Ephesian church. And in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the armor of God, so that we can take our stand against the devil and his schemes. And, and I think absolutely these thinkings are demonic schemes by the devil because they sound really good, right? Like legalism makes you sound really holy, doesn't it? Asceticism makes you like, I'm just, I'm just co-suffering with Christ. I'm just bearing my cross and bearing my burdens with him. It sounds like really good. Mysticism, like, I'm just, man, I'm encountering a lot of spiritual stuff. It sounds good, but any gospel that's different than Christ crucified, you are saved by grace through faith, is not the gospel at all. And so here's what we find at the communion table as you come up today, and you each have your bends. You each have your different things that you kind of fall to at different times. 
But as you approach communion, just remember this. You were saved by grace. This is where, this is where Paul says, put on the helmet of your salvation. So I'm just going to walk you through how you were saved. You were saved by grace. It was nothing you did on your own. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. But you were saved by grace. You are saved by grace through faith alone. Like there's no act or work that you could possibly do to add to God's love or favor for your life. Nothing. Like, like your obedience might create some, some nice uh, fruit that you get to yield in some season, but God is not looking down at those who are more obedient going like, well, I love those ones more. He's just not. You're saved by grace through faith because of the cross. And that's the one that we come and we reflect on probably most deeply in communion. Because we go, yeah, that, this was my punishment that I deserved. I deserved to be hanging there on that cross. It was my blood that should have been shed. And when, and when I internalized that it was actually, no, it was Jesus who came and he died for me. And I, and I received the grace that I didn't deserve this salvation. And I, and I just believe it in faith. And that's how it's credited to me. Now, all of a sudden, my legalism doesn't hold any weight. My mysticism, my, my kind of spiritual hierarchies don't hold any weight. And, and the asceticism, this tendency to go like, well, I just got to deny myself everything. No, you don't got to spend so much time getting everything out of your life. You got to get more of Jesus into your life. That, this is all of what Colossians 1, 2 has been up about up until this point is he is above all. He is in all. He created everything. He is preeminent. He's the most valuable thing. And so I, as you come to the communion table today, what I want you to do is I want you to just be honest about where you're at in your heart with him. And if, man, I've got this legalistic tendency. Man, I've really been, I've been captivated by this kind of thinking. And I just, I want to lay it down and ask if the way that I'm thinking, the way that I'm talking, the way that like I'm acting in my legalism, in my, in my asceticism, is it is it really, God, the gospel that you intended for me to receive? Because that grace and faith and the cross are the same things that are keeping you saved now, just as they were in your initial salvation. And so we're going to come and we're going to commune. I want to put a little more instruction to this today because we've had some more people. And it's one thing if communion takes a long time because you're all having such a good time with the Lord. It's another thing if it takes a long time because y'all can't get the juice. You know what I'm saying? So what I, here's what I want to do you're only gonna come down to get communion from these two aisles right here. And so if you're in this half of the room, you're gonna come down this aisle. If you're in this half of the room, you're gonna come down this aisle. And then you're just gonna grab what's ever on your side of your seat and you're gonna peel off that way. You're gonna peel off this way. If you're in the balcony, you got two tables up there. Um, but let me pray. And then as your heart is prepared, I want you to come and I want you to grab the elements and I want you to commune with your savior. Jesus, I pray that we would put off our former way of thinking? Would we not be conformed to the thoughts and the patterns and the culture of this world, God, but would we be transformed by the renewing of our mind? And would that start in our understanding and our receiving of your salvation? That we, uh, we've been saved by grace. God, this wasn't anything we did or earned, God. You just have given it to us. And in faith, we receive it this morning. And God, we thank you. We humbly thank you for the punishment that you bore in our place. Jesus, I pray this morning that you would increase our devotion to you this morning. Would we have, would we have areas of our heart where we're given new affection to you this morning? And if we have spots where we just haven't surrendered fully to your mercy for our life, I pray that we'd bring that to the communion table today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you.